You're listening to Key Matters from Kappa Kappa Gamma with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. I'm Kylie Smith, the Archivist and Museum Director, and my co-host is Dr. Mary Osborne, the Director of the Stewart House Museum. Thank you for joining us as we travel through the Key Magazine from 1882 to today. Hey, Dr. Oz. Yay, so Key Matters. So I had 1901 and you had 1902. As I was getting halfway through reading 1901, I thought, I'm pretty sure Oz said she's doing 1902. <laughs> that could be awkward. But then I thought, well, if we both did the same year, that'd kind of be funny. Because then we could also see like if we hit some of the same things or if we didn't. So Yeah, it would be it'd be interesting to see our perspectives. I'm sure there would be things that would catch my attention that wouldn't catch yours and vice versa. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, well, in 1901, there were just a few things going on. The uh, British colonies of New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, Tasmania, Victoria, and Western Australia formed the Commonwealth of Australia, and they established a system of federalism there. That's early. Um, I know they're still, they're part of the Commonwealth, but that is earlier than I remember of, of them setting up their own government. Typhoid fever broke out in a Seattle jail, and that's the first of two typhoid outbreaks in the United States during that year. I will refrain from making any typhoid Mary jokes at this juncture. Oil was discovered at Spindle Top in Beaumont, Texas, which was the first great Texas gusher. I didn't know that was the way we described finding oil in Texas, so the Texas gusher. On January 22nd, Queen Victoria died, and at that time, she was Great Britain's longest-serving monarch, but we know that Elizabeth has now surpassed that. And, and, she, was that? and she died at Osborne House. Yes. Is it spelled the same? It is. I, and I don't really know why it's named. I tried and tried to find out kind of more of the history of that house and why it's named Osborne House, and I've never been able to. But, um, well, there were there was um, a family a noble family called uh, the the duke of leeds they were all osbornes so. so you're not the heiress though to the Os- no, no unfortunately not <laughs> actually i think we should say the heiress to the house of Os or yeah the house of osborne <laughs> not just osborne house Since we are both big sports fans, you'll be interested to know that baseball's american league declared itself a major league in 1901 I don't really know what that means, but I'm sure some people think that's important. U.S. Steel was incorporated by industrialist J.P. Morgan as the first billion-dollar corporation. And then my home state of New York became the first U.S. state to require automobile license plates. Sadly, also in my home state on September 6th, President William McKinley was shot by anarchist Leon Sholgosh in Buffalo, New York at the Pan American Exposition. And this is a dual home state. My adopted home state of Ohio is where McKinley was from, and he served as governor here. And fun fact, again, I am adjacently famous. McKinley attended the church that I currently attend and where I was married, the Broad Street United Methodist Church. He died eight days later, and then Vice President Teddy Roosevelt was sworn in as the 26th president. 
Then the next month in October, President Roosevelt invited African-American leader Booker T. Washington to the White House. And sadly, some reacted angrily to the visit and racial violence increased in the American South. This was interesting. In November, August August Dieter, August Dieter is first examined by the German psychiatrist, Dr. Alzheimer. And that, was lead, that led to a diagnosis of the condition that would carry Alzheimer's name. And then towards the end of 1901, on December 10th, the first Nobel Prize ceremony was held in Stockholm on the fifth anniversary of Alfred Nobel's death. There were quite a few recognizable people who were born in 1901, Clark Gable, Zeppo Marx, Hirohito, Grand Duchess Anastasia of Russia, Chuck Taylor, the American basketball player. I know him more for the shoes rather than the sport. Uh, Pancho Villa, Filipino boxer, Louis Armstrong, the American jazz musician, Ed Sullivan, Walt Disney, Margaret Mead. Oh, I wanted to be Margaret Mead so bad, the American cultural anthropologist. And then Marlene Dietrich, the German-American actress, all were born in 1901. And you might recognize a few of the names of folks who died in 1901. I mentioned previously Victoria um, died earlier in the year in January, but then Verdi, the composer, Toulouse-Lautrec, the French painter, and Ben Harrison, our favorite president, also a Hoosier, died in 1901. I've been to his grave. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> and this was a surprise to me. Victoria, the Princess Royal, so the daughter of Queen Victoria, died in 1901 as well, just eight months after her mother, Queen Victoria. She died of breast cancer and was just yeah. 60. Oh, here's a fun fact. Chuck Taylor, you know, of the shoe fame, was born in Brown County, Indiana. So there you go. <laughs> I was going to say, was he like in the movie Hoosiers or he must have had something to do with it? <laughs> he has great shoes. That's that's uh, all. All right, Kappa in 1901 through the lens of the key. I guess in 1901, we have to stop talking about the new century and the new decade. We're, we're fully in it now. Uh, we have a new editor of the magazine, Lucy Allen Smart, and she is from Baden New Chapter at Ohio State. And I should say she starts out as Lucy Allen. She gets married later and that's announced in the magazine. And she was actually credited as the editor in the October 1900 issue. Um, she was elected at the convention just before, but it really seems like she's fully in the mix by this January 1901 issue. We see more ads both in the front and the back of the magazine. Besides the newly published catalog of Kappa Kappa Gamma, though I say newly published, it's now, I think it's from 1898. So it's a little bit old at this point but it's one of the first directories for the fraternity. So that's being advertised for sale. And then my favorite, there's an ad for OMO Dress Shields. Yeah. Not OMG, OMO. They're hailed as absolutely odorless, absolutely impervious, and they contain no rubber. So without a decent antiperspirant, a lady's dress could be ruined by sweat stains. So dress shields were a must. <laughs> Can you imagine the ones that did contain rubber? Ugh, talk about making you sweat. And I can't even imagine the chafing that you would have if you had these rubber dress shields that you wore under your armpits. So after an opening poem on loyalty that was submitted as a toast, there's an article by Cora Rigby, and it's wonderful. I'm embarrassed that I had not heard of her before. This is the famous cap I was telling you about. 
Rigby is a Kappa from our Phi chapter at Boston University, and she was the first woman at a major paper to head a Washington news bureau and was one of the founders of the National Women's Press Club, because at the time, the National Press Club did not admit women. She was born in Lancaster, Ohio, just outside of Columbus, and she wanted to write for the local paper here in Columbus. So she submitted a column, and naturally, people were scandalized at the idea of a woman writer, but she was good enough that the editor eventually ran some of her pieces, of course, without her name attached, and she worked unpaid for a while. And then word got out that the daughter of Judge William Rigby was writing a politics column And that did not go over well. So he went to the newsroom, brought her home, told her mother to take better care of her. But then the next day, she was back at the paper writing about politics again. Wikipedia says that at one point, she asked for her own desk at the newspaper. And when she was told there wasn't one available, she went over to an empty desk and made it her own. When she died in 1930, it was said that she did more than any other to break down prejudice against newspaper women in Washington. Um, the, I, I could go on and on about all things Cora Rigby, but I'll let everyone else read about her, but she spent a lot of time at the Christian Science Monitor and was the first woman to lead that newspaper, and so in this article, she is writing as an alumna, now 15 years removed from her initiation, and she ends with this. One reason that the alumna claims so much practical value for ideals of the sort that guide and inspire the college girl is that it is about the only thing that will save her from misanthropy, cynicism, and all that miserable crew that lie in wait in the big world and from which it is so difficult to escape. A good live ideal valiantly adhered to is a sure weapon of defense in such case. So I really hope that when Lucy Allen got her pal Cora Rigby to write that article that everyone noticed what a big deal it must have been. Later articles that are written with a sense of idealism and reflection are really similar to what we have seen before. They talk about what it means to be a Kappa, how to carry the full responsibility of the privilege of our association, and then they talk about what kinds of aspirations were stated at the dawn of the new century, and then whether or not we're actually doing our part to fulfill those great hopes of 1900 and beyond. So yeah, I guess we're not really able to keep saying that it's the new century, but they still are a little bit in the key. Yeah, I mean, well, if you think about it in 1999, kind of 2000, I'm pretty sure by 2002, we were still talking about the new millennium, so. I, we kind of still are in 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So many of us who spent a majority of our lifetimes in the 1900s are, uh, at least for me, I still think of the 2000s as like recent and new. Um, Let's see, there's even more news of what the alumni associations are up to. And so we still see that emphasis on Kappa being more than just four years as an undergraduate. The personals and exchanges give lots of news about marriages and professions. And in these issues, they're actually equal in number. For a while, we saw mostly just marriages and moves and who was visiting home and a few professional announcements. But there's just as many people who are announcing their new professions or where they're teaching or working um, as there are women who are getting married. The chapter letters are typical. They don't reveal many new things, 
But the fraternity news at the end of the January issue demonstrates the tradition that continues today, longtime Kappa volunteers being appointed to a number of different roles. So in this case, former editors of the magazine, they announced that Minetta Taylor, first editor of the magazine from 1881 to 1886, was appointed the historian. And then Mary J. Hall was appointed the permanent cataloger. She was editor of the magazine from 1894 to 1900. And then she edited the Kappa calendar, spelled with a K, which I don't love, in 1894 and 1897. And then she published the catalog in 1898 as well. So that's what was being sold in the front of this magazine. They also mentioned the cover of the key, and it appears to be the first mention of how it changes with each administration of both council members and editors. And they, they declare that it's not for vanity, but for uniformity that they change these covers. I think that changes down the road as the editors decide what they want the covers to look like. The April issue opens with two articles, and they include photographs of both Ohio State University and the University of Kansas. And then after that, the news of what the alumni associations are up to um, include the personal notes that uh, Baden New says that Lucy Allen, editor of the magazine, is engaged to Mr. George Smart. He was the editor of the Columbus Citizen and also of the Phi Kappa Psi catalog. So I want to know if Cora Rigby came head to head with George Smart when she was trying to write for a paper, but it doesn't say what paper she started with. So then do you suppose they ended up ghostwriting for one another's magazines and newspapers? That would be interesting. I liked the announcement from Upsilon chapter at Northwestern that on February 9th, 1901, Elizabeth Raymond gave a handkerchief shower for Una Howell. And then the following Saturday, Laura Whitlock gave a linen shower for Una. This was all for her upcoming marriage to Mr. George Cook. And a quick search brought up the history of wedding handkerchiefs and how they are supposedly um, traced back to Romans and possibly even earlier, though the idea was that handkerchiefs were seen as a status symbol for the wealthy with the Romans. Then they talked about the symbolic dropping of the handkerchief to start a race, um, all the way to its use as a, a head accessory, particularly in some religions, <laughs> then ended with the practical use to blow one's nose or to use for drying one's uh, happy tears at a wedding. I love handkerchiefs and I use them myself. So let's bring back handkerchief showers and they don't have to just be for weddings. Maybe I'll throw you a handkerchief shower as a, a welcome to your new home. Oh no, I could probably use some doilies. Yes, doilies and handkerchiefs both. That'll be part of the linen shower, the doilies. <laughs> Later in this April issue, they begin a series on chapter histories, and this is no doubt due to the efforts of Minetta, who was announced in the January issue following her appointment as historian. And this, to me, and maybe to you, is a rather useful discovery. We are always looking for these different accounts of fraternity history and how we can compare them, and you can see as they find new information, some of those, those histories change. So it reminds me of our ability to search the magazine by keyword. So history will be one of my future searches to see what information might have been gathered in those earlier years, but then never made it into the later history books. And there will be some incorrect things, too, that we can know that we corrected later. Towards the end of the April issue, there's a note that August 15th had been chosen as the Kappa Day at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo. You'll remember that I mentioned the assassination of President McKinley at the same event, so I had to look back quickly and make sure that it wasn't the same date. Thankfully, it wasn't. McKinley was shot by 
Cholgosh on September 6th. So after my gushing over handkerchiefs, I'll not dwell on the fact that Cholgosh concealed his gun under a handkerchief. We won't even talk about Ida McKinley's relationship to handkerchiefs. Yeah, look it up, people. <laughs> What's that? I said, look it up. <laughs> look it up, people. <laughs> I know. All right, moving into the July issue, we open with the installation of Beta Mu at the University of Colorado. And it's interesting how they write in detail of the ceremony, and they include things today that may be considered ritual. The funniest bit is that after the installation, the new members attended a banquet still wearing the gowns that they wore for initiation. Uh, I think today most of us would not be pleased about that decision, but it must have made for a pretty cool scene, depending on the time of day, especially. The universities highlighted in this issue, of course, include Colorado because of that installation, but then Hillsdale, the home of Kappa Chapter, and Indiana, the home of Delta Chapter. And I know this is not the first, but it's the first that I've noticed announced in such a formal matter. In the alumni news on page 163, Beta Iota alums from Swarthmore mention that they have taken an important step by electing an advisory committee. And it says their duty shall be to keep in direct communication with the active chapter, thus enabling them to give advice when advice is thought necessary, which I'm sure to most alums is always, and to whom the undergraduates can turn if they desire the counsel of their more experienced sisters. Other chapters write about how alumni have offered recommendations for girls from their area who expect to go to college, as well as advising with the girls regarding the various trying points which will arise in the life of every chapter. But like I said, this is the first time that I saw it formally announced that way. And then the bulk of this July issue is later devoted to the annual reports of the chapters, but at the end, there is a note that the Kappa Day at the Pan American Exposition has been moved now from August 15th to July 29th, and that's so that visiting Kappas can visit with the Grand Council members who will be in session the last three days of July. And I would like to suggest that our current council plan their meetings around world fairs or perhaps state fairs. I think that would be super fun. They may disagree. And finally, closing out 1901 with the October issue, we have a profile of Barnard, the Women's College to Columbia and home to our Beta Epsilon chapter. DePauw, home of our IOTA chapter, and Missouri, home of our Theta chapter, are also profiled. The articles to follow are that usual flavor of fraternity spirit, honor in rushing, and a plea to treat students outside of the fraternity with kindness, and in the chapter letters, the writer from Syracuse begins with what a good time they had at the Pan American. I would think that the whole affair on reflection was marred by the assassination and then later death of the president, but I guess not for those that attended beforehand. Um, the later account of Kappa Day at the Pan American includes a list of attendees, around 50 at that luncheon. So it was a big deal and, and worth mentioning, of course. They did note, too, that the Grand President, Gene Penfield, was unable to attend the luncheon because of a sudden attack of illness. Most of the chapter's letters uh, include news of a round-robin letter that was circulated through the summer, and they're all pleading with others to try it. And so it's, it's fun to read how much this connects women at the time, much the same as group chats would connect our sisters through the summer nowadays. We have talked in previous issues about the common types of maladies and illnesses that we saw, but in this last issue from 1901, I was surprised to see that in the in memoriam section, 
There was the notice of the death of Allegra Eggleston Seely from Psy Chapter at Cornell. She was struck by lightning and instantly killed. So very sad and very different from the other causes of death that we see reported. I also noticed that Allegra had attended Kappa Day at the Pan American. So at least she was able to spend time with her Kappa sisters that summer. Jean Penfield then wrote in a recap of the Grand Council meetings held in Buffalo, and I was interested to see that an advisory committee was formed of the three immediate past presidents with the hope that they would be a source of great strength to the fraternity. Also in this issue, biographies and photographs of the Grand Council members are included for the first time, and they write that this was a long request of many of the readers, so um, they, they for sure are trying to include more photographs. <laughs> This is great. In the editorials, there are prizes of new Kappa keys from one, the jeweler D.L. Ald, and they announced for alumni subscribers in this contest. You could alumni subscribers could win this key from Ald. And then there was a second key from the jeweler Charles Clegg for the best chapter letters. The chapter letter prize description is the best. They write. Some of the letters in the key are not worthy of the weakest chapter of the weakest fraternity. Others are not quite so bad, but all can be improved upon. As a matter of fact, the chapter letters in the sorority journals are a subject of ridicule in the whole Greek world. The girls use slang, they speak of their gentlemen friends, and they use provincial terms to a surprising degree. The latest fudge party or informal dance seems to obstruct the vision of the correspondent so that a new building, a large endowment, or a new department in the college or university are entirely overlooked. <laughs> so, ouch. Basically, if you won't do better, I guess we'll try and bribe you with a new key. And good luck in your endeavor to write a letter that is worthy of the editors because they are to be sent to Minetta Taylor and Mary Hall, both former editors who were literal geniuses. So I won't be surprised if you say that there are no winners announced in your 1902 issues. And I called it Phi Kappa Psi, the fraternity of editor Lucy Allen's husband, George Smart announced in one of their issues, then sent through the exchanges, that the editor of the key became Mrs. Smart on Tuesday evening, June 25th. They continue to write that the key of Kappa Kappa Gamma and the catalog of Phi Kappa Psi have acquired assistant editors in whom both sorority and fraternity may justly take pride. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, when I first read that, I was like, oh, who was her assistant editor? <laughs> I was not thinking that they were saying they each were their own assistant editors. Took me a minute, slow on the uptake. So there was a lot in 1901, but I say that almost every year that I cover. So I guess at least I'm on brand with this one. Now, about 1902, anything interesting going on then? Well, I can confirm that there were no winners of the uh, prize key as it seems that the caliber of the letters really didn't change that much. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Key Matters, brought to you by Kappa Kappa Gamma, with generous support from the Kappa Kappa Gamma Foundation. Our headquarters is in Columbus, Ohio. Our house museum, the Stewart House, is in Monmouth, Illinois. You can find us online at kappa.org, or you can peruse our digital archives at kappa.historyit.com. Research and production is done by the director of the Stewart House Museum and member of Alpha Deuteron Chapter at Monmouth College, Dr. Mary Osborne. 
and me, Kylie Smith, from Omicron Deuteron Chapter at Simpson College and the Archivist and Museum Director for Kappa Kappa Gamma. Thank you.